All right, let's start with the opening prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father. Oh, Heavenly Father. Divine Mother. Divine Mother. Beloved Jesus Christ. Beloved Jesus Christ. Blessed Master. Blessed Master. Dearest Mother. Dearest Mother. Beloved David. Beloved David. Saints and sages of all religions. Saints and sages of all religions. I bow to all of you. I bow to all of you. Free my life of all obstacles. Free my life from all obstacles. And give me physical, mental, and spiritual development. And give me physical, mental, and spiritual development. Make my mind thy temple. Make my mind thy temple. Make my heart thy altar. Make my heart thy altar. My love thy home. Make my love thy home. Be thou the only king. Be thou the only king. Reigning on the throne of my consciousness. Reigning on the throne of my consciousness. Amen. Do a short meditation. Um, I'm going to share video if people want to watch it at the same time. Uh, it's what Kate and I uh, recorded when we were in Medjugorje. I was going to play the music today, but I, the video is nice too, so you can kind of see what life was there. Um, and it's only about four or five minutes. This is the communion service. Uh, in the, um, I think it's St. James um, that they have in Medjugorje. Thank you. 
and just say one thing. There was uh, that's one of maybe four or five services in different languages. So all those people came to the English language one. So just wanted to mention that. Yeah, it takes me to that day and um, kind of the feeling that was in that room. It was very crowded and people were making room for us. And, um, and it was pouring, pouring rain. Uh, Everybody was wet coming in. Yeah, we were soaked. But the, I remember the feeling in the room, too. I mean, that's the most important thing to me is that how much um, devotion and um, sharing of this ideal that they have. It almost doesn't matter, as long as it's not causing harm, what it is that's being shared. The sharing itself almost becomes the, um, the reason for, for it all. But every one of these um, holy sites that the Catholics have was very <clears throat> respectful and very wonderful. We were accepted so well. My reading, uh, Bible reading tonight is um, from Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And from Ephesians 5, uh, 33, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. And um, there was a verse, I'm sorry. The woman is supposed to wear a covering on her head. Here we go. This is Corinthians. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one is, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. And I've talked about this book before, too, in different times. And this is from reading from a book called Paul Among, let's see, Paul Among the People, the People. Forgot the, yeah, Paul Among the People by Sarah Rudin. And um, here's her uh, looking into the details of that uh, time when Paul was speaking, especially in uh, Corinth. Respectable Greek and Roman women traditionally wore concealing veils in public. Marriage and widowhood were the chief things that a veil signaled. For a Roman woman to get married and to veil oneself were exactly the same word. The veil held great symbolism, reminded everyone that all freeborn women, women with families to protect them, were supposed to enter adulthood 
already married, and that they were supposed to stay chastely married or else chastely widowed until the end of their lives. The veil was the flag of female virtue, status, and security. In the port city of Corinth, with its batteries of prostitutes, including the sacred prostitutes of the temple of Aphrodite, the distinction between veiled and unveiled women would have been even more crucial. And then she goes into a description of the different um, things that were going on with slaves and how they were being more treated, not as equals, but being raised up in status and things like that. Let me see if I can find this section. At the very least, there must have been among the Christians women with pasts, meaning prostitutes potentially. And uh, she mentions earlier that Paul uh, was harder on men who visited prostitutes than women who had formerly been, because he knew that this was sometimes forced on women, and it wasn't something of their own choice. And he just stayed away from it. At the very least, there must have been among the Christians women with pasts. Would not bareheadedness, the lack of a symbol of authority on their heads, have galled them? They were entitled to be there, meaning the ones with, that were justifiably there of that time. But the norms of the time said that they had to be there in the outfits of degraded, vulnerable beings. It was against custom, and perhaps even against the law, for them to be veiled. At Greek religious festivals, women's police would circulate, making sure not only that respectable women were not flashily or revealingly dressed, but probably also that other women did not take on the exclusive prestigious symbols of a matron or widow. In Rome, also, dress was regulated in detail. For example, any married woman found to have committed adultery would lose forever the right to wear a floor-length, heavily bordered stola and a veil. Any woman who had ever been a prostitute was, of course, not allowed to wear them uh, either. So then she says, now she talks earlier about Paul's rule that women should be covered and men not. I think Paul's rule aimed toward an outrageous equality. All Christian women were to cover their heads in church without distinction of beauty, wealth, respectability, or of privilege. Privilege so great as to allow toying with traditional appearances. The most hurtful thing about bareheaded, gorgeously coiffed wives might not have been their frivolity, but rather their thoughtless flaunting of styles that meant degradation to some of their sisters. As if a suburban matron attended an inner city mission church in hip boots, a miniskirt and a blonde wig. Perhaps the new decree made independent women of uncertain status or even slave women honorary wives in this setting. If the women complied, and later church traditions suggest they did, you could have looked at a congregation and not necessarily been able to tell who was an honored wife and mother and who had been forced or maybe was still being forced to service 20 or 30 men a day. This had never happened in any public gathering before. Now, she makes makes the case in a way that we have to know the times, uh, we have to be sensitive to the times in which people live. My grandmother used to wear a veil to church or to out and uh, in any kind of formal gathering and going out, I, as I remember, but certainly maybe even for shopping, but certainly uh, for big events, she would wear a veil as well as a, as a hat. 
and she wasn't Catholic. She, at that time, she be, she was um, <laughs> she was baptized by my grandfather uh, when she went into an operation one time, and he was worried he was going to lose her, and um, you know, so he had the priest come in and baptize her. My same thing happened to my uh, non-Catholic uncle in Montana, and uh, he became a, a uh, an adherent. He actually joined the church and took, the, even though he had been baptized so formally, he had been in the church, but he, he accepted it rather well and had always liked the priests and the people in the church anyway, whereas my grandmother was more opposed to it, and so she she wasn't disrespectful, but she didn't take active part in it. So one thing I wanted to touch on was that first quote in which it says that there's no male or female in the view of the Christ from the Galatians quote. And there's no difference between male and female as far as the eyes of God goes, as far as the eye of God sees, and that in the astral plane there is no uh, gender. So we're also told that they take the form of their last incarnation at a, at a better time, at the best ideal time, say 25 or so is what Master talks about. And so the women would be seen as women and men as men, but we don't know exactly how the rules are played up there. But I find that uh, there is no gender there being very important to this realm and necessary for reproduction. There's a mechanism that's being controlled, I'm convinced, by the uh, great astral saints and great astral beings that control things that go on here. And Mother, Mother's teachings were that the... Um, missing link we're looking for in the DNA and in the fossil record is not in the fossil record here because the it all play, takes place in the astral realm. So this fluidity between male and female in different lifetimes, I get the impression from what my mother said, we can maybe confirm this, but um, that you would spend several lifetimes um, as a uh, as one gender and then switch over. And when the switchover was made after, say, many lifetimes as one gender, then you it would be more difficult. And so she was explaining what the homosexuality was or the lesbians, gay world is, is all about and what goes on. And some people literally just cannot um, uh, get any interest in the opposite sex because they are still thinking of themselves in that way, in, inwardly. Whereas, and, and once people are ready for, and she said a couple people that they should, uh, that she knew, she asked them to to make the switch. You, you're ready to make the switch and, and with varying success. Such a complicated world here. So many things going on here, getting played out. And then Mother also talked about the allegorical aspect of male and female, that the male is the head and the head should lead the heart, which is the female, meaning that Adam and Eve, for instance, was the rational, the um, logical part of the brain, should have the final say on things, that the um, that that's what is meant by the man should you know lead the woman. 
but there seems to be some pretty old traditions. Um, tradi and I, I heard, just heard recently someone say that traditions are experiments that panned out, that worked. And, uh, or yeah, experiments that worked and were successful. So in many things, we really need to be careful when we throw traditions out because of misunderstanding to say that uh, Paul was against women. I mean, that's what her book, that's really quite a wonderful book, Paul Among the People. And um, so she doesn't defend everything about him. She, he was definitely a man of his time and wasn't married. So she was uh, recognizing that there were aspects that he was dogmatic on. But at the same time, he was focused on God and he was focused on the higher teachings. And so this idea that perhaps uh, he, he made these some of these rules to make life easier for the actual getting together of these uh, people, getting together and uh, worshiping and being in communion with people, that is better to not have any woman be treated differently in that context in the realm. Before God, we are all even, we are all equal. And that he liked to create that. So that's, I love this book when I first read it because of that. I think it puts light in a, uh, puts Paul in a better light. And mostly it gives context to a whole bunch of things about Paul. What he was like. He was a, a tent maker and how he traveled and worked his way through. He doesn't, he wasn't a leech, you know, he wasn't uh, going around and expecting everyone to take care of him. And he was, uh, he would make a living of some sort all the time. Yeah, I've gone back and forth on Paul. You know, I always you know, thought in the early days that, we're, that the Christian church was really Paulinian church, and to a great extent it is. He's the single most influential person. But uh, the Gospels, uh, of course, are apostolic, meaning that they were influenced by the apostles mentioned, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke, of course, was a disciple of... Um, Oh boy. Mark was a disciple of, of Peter's. Matthew was probably written by his disciples. John also by his disciples and, and later, written later. But, um, Luke followed, traveled with Paul, didn't he? I believe that's right. So Luke was, uh, hmm. doesn't seem to fit though, because why would he be doing the, the uh, work about the Gospels when he wasn't an eyewitness to it or, or you know, a disciple of an eyewitness. But um, there is a difference between the Gospels and Paul's writings. And, you know, Paul doesn't seem to have knowledge of the stories about Jesus' birth and many other things about his life. And so there's evidence that, of course, that Paul wrote his stuff. He was one of the earliest biblical uh, Christian Bible uh, things were from Paul. And I think Mark was the first of the uh, Gospels, maybe late 18th or uh, late, late uh, first century. Luke traveled with Paul. Luke traveled with Paul, yeah. And he was a doctor, I believe, too. That's right. Yeah. What do we do with a society the way that we have it when we have um, the need to reproduce for the species. What do women and men do that's different, and are they different? 
is kind of the question and the confusion that's living that we're living through now. So one thing that God showed me was that uh, we are born and the the uh, tra we travel down the spine as we grow. And uh, Mother said uh, he she got into a debate or an argument, a friendly argument with uh, Doctor. Uh, Eric Johnson, who was a chiropractor, whom she loved very much, and um, he he had studied the, um, the the embryos and the embryonic and the development from conception on through the embryo, and uh, for his own work about the, how the skeleton was formed, and uh, he said that he believed that the first cells that were formed in the in the very beginning, blastocysts or all these different terms that they call, he thinks they later become, that nodule or that area later became the umbilical, the navel, the, the, and uh, that part of the body. And Mother said, no, it was, a, it was at the uh, third eye point. And so, you know, they, back, they, uh, they argued back and forth, but she was insistent that that's where everything took place. And so... Knowing that, I was thinking about all of this, and it came to me just kind of wholly formed that really, if you think about the child, and they can do very little when they're first born, but there's much, much has been developed, and this, the soul, the control of the body slowly comes down from the upper in the brain, and uh, it descends down, and eventually the child can move their arms, they can move their legs. And those are actually nerve centers from higher up that run the arms. They're up in the, um, I'm not sure if it's cervical, but it's in the, in the um, thoracic area. And uh, that as these nerves get enlivened, then the more and more capable control of the body is possible. I've, I've personally noticed, and I've paid attention to this for years, that children's personalities change, uh, and they're very different. So... I remember meeting um, a friend of mine from uh, Yakima when I was, and I knew him when I was maybe eight or nine, seven, seven, eight, nine, something like that. And then he moved, and then I moved also. So we never saw each other again until we were in, I think I was 19 or 20. And uh, how different he was. He seemed so different from me. And um, uh, from, my, from my memory of him, person, personality-wise, and I've watched our grandkids too, how they, how they act when they're little. And we've recorded some of these things and they're really quite different than they are, than they become. They, they narrow things down to be the person they want to be. And, uh, it's really quite delightful. But when you meet, like I did, my seminarian friends, um, this, just last summer, <clears throat> these people were personalities that I completely uh, related to. I mean, I knew them well. Uh, it had been 50-some years, but I still knew, and I recognized how much their personalities had been decided on by that time, between the ages of 14 and 16 when I was there. So what came to me is that when you think about how we develop and become fully grown, the last thing that happens is the reproductive organs, the bottom chakra. So it's kind of more proof that, yes, we develop more and more capabilities uh, as we go down the spine, and the spine is sent out. It's interesting how most children, anyway, I know there's exceptions to this, 
But most children don't have much interest in sexual things. Uh, and certainly by good parenting, you can make them not be part of their lives. They don't need to know or see all these things that adults do in that realm. But that um, when, and think about how much change occurs during the, with the hormones and things. And uh, that this occurs because the, the person is not fully formed until that takes place. And, of course, 13, 14 is the bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. And the Muslims also, uh, strangely enough, my Turkish brother-in-law, I guess I, this is, I found out this is common only in certain countries, Turkey is one of them, that they do the um, circumcision at age 13. And then he's accepted as a, as a boy. I mean, as a man, out of boyhood. And so that's the shocking experience that he had. My, my brother-in-law talked about this, and I have read more about it, but he, I remember him telling me that when we, in my early days with him, and how what a shocking thing. I think he was against circumcision. He's kind of modern in his approach. But he anyway, he said that he had, was not told what was going to happen, and then he was taken in at 13 on a great celebration, and he, there was a party and everything, but then part of that was the experience of being circumcised as a young man. So it was quite quite a shock and really horrible thing to have done to him. But I'm sure it's difficult for the young boys also. But the um, the main thing is this um, as this uh, as we go out into the world, if we talk about Rama going out into the forest, all the symbology, Jesus going to um, Egypt, you know, all of the symbolism we've talked about before, that. These things occur in the body, and they, and they reflect something that's really quite dramatic. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the the last thing needed here, and the, and the thing that's not part of our astral body, or not, is the genitals, the the bottom chakra. As I'm sure the bottom chakra might exist, because it kind of everything has to exist first in the astral, but it is um, differently used. And uh, uh, the what goes on, how it manifests in this realm is necessary for the reproduction. Mother said that the, the energy that is involved in the sexual organs and the, the focus on it and all that is so powerful. It's because it's the cosmic energy of the universe. It's, it's that which created the universe. And it's put in, instilled in, in man and in woman uh, in their bodies. And so it is uh, seen as absolutely essential that if you take away the the impulse, you don't have a successful uh, species. You can't. And so it's part of uh, the odd thing about this existence here that's mixed into all the other odd things about the physical realm <clears throat> that we have to contend with. <clears throat> that we have to contend with um, this uh, problem. I mean, for men, it's one thing. But for women, it is a, it is potentially a death sentence. You know, it is literally, mother said so many times that women, mothers go into the jaws of death to pull that child into this realm. It's such a dire circumstance, giving birth. <clears throat> and then the child, the child is still really a fetus. And for three months or so, it's considered, it's technically would be considered a fetus in other animals because it's so unable to do anything for itself. But it's unnecessary birth time because of the size of the head and that race between the size of the pelvis and the size of heads and that uh, was the unfortunate aspect of this physical realm. 
it's so so strange that it's become the way that it has. If the child was born a month earlier, it would be much easier birth and fewer deaths. And it's just a the lot of women. And uh, we live in the modern age, and we don't recognize that um, what is given to women is a really very very difficult. Very rewarding women who, you know, mothers who are happy to be mothers and want to have children and have lots of children. And they have a society and a, a spouse and society and family that uh, support that and bring in great joy and uh, great uh, respect is given to a woman who's pregnant walking down the street. This is doesn't matter what it means nowadays. I mean, I, I, I remember in the mid-70s or so, and somehow pregnant women were just, I just remember being that so marked for me how different things were in the mid-70s when we moved back to Seattle. That women who were pregnant were looked down upon. They were stuff. They, they, they sold out or they were suckers. So, but that's not the normal circumstance in the society. And the healthy society that has the need for children and the need to bring in the next generation. Uh, revere the woman who's pregnant and protect so there can be many, and of course the joy of holding your own child, even as a father, that's just nothing quite like it. And for the mother, it's just so much more intense. I mean, I, I know of it myself, it's so intense. And yet, um, for the mother, it will be like always her own flesh. It's, it's really quite remarkable and a very trying and difficult thing to go through. All aspects of that whole the whole process, it's amazing. And so much energy was given to that in order to keep the species alive and the self-replicating aspects of this wonderful realm uh, functioning correctly that we, we assign a huge amount of energy to it. And in reality, well, one person of the two types of people, male and female, the female bears the most risk, the most burden, and is really compromised in many aspects of her life uh, compared to men, just physically, uh, emotionally, hormonally. All of these things are things that she is forced, if you want to look at it that way, and modern day world we do, uh, forced to live with the reality of what is foisted upon them. Men have much foisted upon them too, but it's just so different. So the natu it's natural for things who have, for the woman to be mostly associated with the rearing of children and the, well, and the making, uh, being a homemaker, being around the home and, and making a place for her husband and for her family. You know, it occurred to me recently that Mary's, I've been listening to some uh, people who are kind of what are called traditional conservatives who are called tradcons in the world of the social media. And um, they were saying that, um, I lost my thought on that, it'll come to me. But the, uh, so it's been kind of a fun area to be in, uh, to watch what it is, as people try to put the traditional roles back together, it's kind of almost impossible. We're so uh, you know used to the modern world, and we can't think about putting ourselves back into a realm where we don't have as many options and we don't have full freedom in uh, all things that we can do. 
Oh, I know what it was. So the it's clear to me in listening to you know looking at traditional societies and and uh, in listening to these uh, you know these are professors and and lots of interested people of course too talking about it. But the marriage was not between a husband and a wife. It was between two families. That that's really what a wedding is all about. In fact, don't we all talk about how we have a wedding made public so that everyone knows they're married. And so many parts of society come to their aid and support them and that all those positive things. But to the full acknowledgement that these people are married. But what's been missing in recent years there is that everyone knew, say, a 100 years ago or more, certainly, everyone was aware that marriages were between families. And that's why they are negotiated that way. And now, so Kate and I were talking about the you know, idea of uh, chivalry, you know, and because this is brought up too. Well, where did chivalry come from? Men are, it's because men are not dismissive of their wife and their family. They, 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 you know, healthy societies have men who are completely focused on that, doing whatever it takes and having more drive to bring society forward too by having children and, and making his own parents and his family uh, happy about his marriage and his family and what he can bring to the tribe. We're so different now, and we have this experimentation going on, and there's with all the disasters and all the freedoms and all of the good aspects, but there's a, it's a very mixed uh, blessing, and it is has its, it has its own problems. But this notion that there are uh, differences between men and women. Are, is really important to recognize and to um, whether we whether we accept it to, for today, the roles they are roles that are, are traditional, and they've been proven to work. And there's there are varieties too. There's, uh, I you know there's not just uh, you know what it be polygamy or a man with many wives. There's some places I believe the Tibetans have what's called polygyny, G-Y-N, in which uh, she has more than one husband. And then there's societies where the uncles are more responsible for the children. The wives' brothers are more responsible for the, her children than her own husband. Those are generally the exceptions. Most societies follow in a traditional way that brings strength to the tribe and then to this, the society, the culture, and then the nation. And Roman times were just one of the many ways uh, that culture has evolved and you know, societies who invade other people's uh, lands and and take over colonies and all the things the Romans did and set the standard. Uh, they, they set a standard that others later followed, but they were working off a standard that was uh, going on forever. It's too bad. But uh, stable societies could be, during the times of, we always talk about the wars, and that's what history tends to have thread the needle through all the wars, but the... There's no doubt that the uh, much peace between the wars and times of great longevity I, in Egypt, for instance, my gosh, they would have really uh, tremendous battles. And there's a lot of depictions of that. But they had hundreds of years sometimes of great peace. And so things stabilize and settle into 
I'm sure for many people, a boring kind of thing too. You young men, especially, but people who are young, they want to experiment and do something different. And this is Joseph Campbell's book, The Hero's Journey, is to go outside the confines of what's accepted in culture. So this is uh, confining sometimes, and we grow based on not the smartest person in the world necessarily, but we grow towards the person who's the most uh, willing to risk their risk things about themselves and and their possessions. But I do believe that the modern way, and the Jews have a lot to be responsible here for us, thank, thank goodness, and that the, they, the Pharisees especially, promoted the idea of uh, one man, one woman marriage for life. And we, know, we all know that the, uh, you know, the earlier patriarchs were polygamists. They had more than one wife. And these are typically more desperate circumstances where there really is uh, famines and, and really bad times can come in large groups. And so having a bunch of people eating out of the coffers of the rich man is eventually he has to put a stop to it and so he keeps uh, the women and children and the men are can I tell you an odd thing I've read about or not listened to a woman talk about uh, the honeybees at uh, oh, I don't know the as it gets colder they kick all the males out of the um, colony and uh, the female and, and all of the females basically do everything there. They also do the collecting of the honey and all of that. But they kick all of the males out. And the males do nothing, and they and the females know this. And so when there's no honey or when there's times are getting rough, they're kicked out. Now here's the. I mean, it's such a remarkable world that we live in. She said that the male, uh, the the males, have. Um, have sex with the the queen like maybe once or twice, maybe three times. They fly way up up in the air, 100 feet up into the air, whole swarms of male bees, she says. This is what she's telling us. And they wait for the queen. There may be more than one queen. And that's the way they, they can mix the uh, genetic stock around. And they wait for queens to fly up to them. And then they mate with the queen, and the queen gets enough sperm to produce thousands of eggs. And she doesn't, I believe she said, that they don't have to go back again. But what a strange story. And all the males, when it gets cold, just die and drop to the ground. They're just literally cast aside. And we know nature doesn't make any mistakes. But these seem like really hard things. And... We see this with chickens become friars. Well, the friars are all males. The females are put to work making eggs. So the Jews, not exactly certain about the dates and when this occurred, you know, when they went from the patriarchal to the more modern one. But one thing that we do know is that Basically, by the time of Christ, only the, and really the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., we are stuck with the Pharisees basically winning out completely, and that's because they were they were more flexible 
and they um, were willing to move out of the city and they weren't focused on the temple. They were focused on rabbis and relationships uh, of teachers with students and all of the higher teachings of the, uh, well, we all love, David and I and many other people have read the Nazarene. The world is created in the Nazarene is really quite amazing. And I'm trying to think of the other book by Sholem Ash. But, but anyway, um, maybe that is Sholem Ash. Yeah, it is. So he knows history pretty well. But the uh, Pharisees were clearly of a type that lived through that time. They didn't like the temple priests, and there was antagonism between the Pharisees and the what are called Sadducees, which is talked about that before, Zadoks, or the righteous ones, the, the ones who can go into the Holy of Holies and temple-related uh, things. The Pharisees thought that the high teachings of the Torah and the, the writings and all the history, the, the um, Proverbs and the Psalms and the Genesis, and Torah is the Genesis in the first five books, and the other books of Judges, they, they didn't have a strict canon, but they uh, wanted this to be taught to each person. And they gave a place for, I mean, society grows when you get the young men employed doing something. And the best way to keep him on board is for him to be married and raising his own family. So you can say it's all just practical, which of course it is. But it is a, it's a righteous thing to have done. You know, we all know that almost all the animal kingdom, the males are kicked out of the herd and in some fashion and only the strong males get to mate, or they sometimes with horses, I think they stick around, but sometimes they, they only come together during mating season. And uh, so the idea that uh, we've come to a mature understanding and a, and a building societies that last and are more stable and have development of capabilities and in all kinds of aspects of life, when you put people to, to work doing things, you can raise more food from the ground, you can make more children live through their their infancy, infant mortality can drop. You take care of that part of your life and it will grow on itself. It will not just self-replicate in the, in the body and the egg and the sperm, but it will self-replicate of individuals and they'll grow. Then there's times when there's famines, there's too many people, all kinds of complications. I'm not saying everything is perfect in this earth, but it is. It is the circumstances from which we come, and probably we will go back to. It's hard to say, but since we're on the upswing of the Dwapar Yuga, we have that as a background notion and a background uh, sense of um, optimism that things will proceed if, if we can make it through what we're going through now without killing everyone or causing a major ruckus, a major rupture in the society. There's no reason we can't see things steadily improve in fits and starts. But one thing, I know everyone in the science realm thinks that we're all serially monogamous. I think it's also easier to be monogamous when you only live 20, you know, as an adult, 20 years or so, and you die between the age of 35 and 45. <clears throat> And maybe it's asking a, a bit much to stay married for that time. But, you know, if you have a healthy marriage and you have children and grandchildren and all of the positive aspects of family and a stable society that you can raise them in, it's a lot to ask for, I realize. 
but this is the this is the ideal and let me just you know make it to reflect a little bit on on our teachers here mother and david were big promoters of marriage and big promoters of uh, families mother particularly because of who she was dealing with in the hippie days uh, the different people's ideas she was putting out a high spiritual understanding to them, but she was seen as an old-fashioned woman because she was a grandmother type for promoting marriage and, and uh, all of that. But now, just because it's old-fashioned doesn't mean it's out of fashion, nor that it's wrong. It's it should be it should be considered. David called the marriage a crucible. It is, yeah. Yes. You have a crucible in life anyway, but it's I would call it a crucible by design, more so, meaning that it's a it has a positive. It it, it points us in a better way than just the crucible that God creates for us otherwise. As as the young boy said to the father when he was making his garden and grow and the priest comes by and says to him, what a nice garden you and God have created here. And the little boy says to him, well, you should have seen it when just God had it. So this uh, idea that we can contribute to this and make a society and, and make something great for God is something we really must must uh, ennoble have have a have a notion of nobility associated with it and, and right action. I think that um, the part one piece that's been lost, I think. Um, for a lot of people is the extended family, mm-hmm. you know, the, um, because it is a lot for just two people. It is agreed. To yeah. Raise a number of children and financially support them yeah. and everything without help. Yeah. Really um, significant help from grandparents or That's right. That's right. aunts or uncles and and to have them all living in the same you know in the same community where that's able to happen yeah. um you know it's it just doesn't always happen like no in our modern times we yeah, spread out to, everybody is yeah. spread out we're spread out because of opportunity a lot of times too. You know, my dad moved from Wyoming to Tri Cities and for a job. You know, it's yeah, a great, job. great job. Yeah, you know, that's why. Yeah. But but my mom paid a huge price for it. Yeah, huge price. Why? Well, because she was fertile. <laughs> she had five kids under the age of five, or let's see, five kids under the age of six, anyway. Something like that. Pretty tough thing to go through. Your mom was amazing. (laughs) She was interesting. Yeah. She was funny, too. I really liked 
They say when you ask people about their, their mother, David taught us all this, that they, what is it, Jill, you probably know, it's um, uh, neuro-linguistics, that you look down when you're, when you think of it, when you're asked about your mother, <clears throat> you look elsewhere up for certain memories of, of more technical things. Jill probably knows all this. I think it was the almost bow your head when you, when you yeah. think of your mother. Oh, is that right? Yeah. You look down like... Hmm. It's instinctive, so yeah. As you pull that memory up, then it takes you to your heart. Yeah, pulls you to your heart. Was the piece that uh, was really resonating with me when you were talking about the development of the of the fetus and the child, and think about how and and I know you just love this when you see babies, Larry. Hmm. Their heart centers are so open until they're not. Yeah. And yeah. and and that under two, mm-hmm. you know, they're just so open. Yeah. And that you know, going from here to then to the heart. Well, and I guess yeah. they're. <laughs> they, start to, they start to speak, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Good I point. mean, they certainly start to vocalize. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. And then, and but that heart center is just. Until they move into the will center. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is a necessary thing, but it's a frustrating thing for us parents, yeah. you know. Yeah. Mm. But it just never, never occurred to me to think about it as... Reverse ev- evolution, yeah. Yeah. It's the descent, it's the avatar yeah. within each one of us descending into flesh. But there's, I, I don't remember if it was Buddhist or which, which uh, faith idea, but... Um, our, our daughter had, was just miserable from like eight, five to seven months, scream bloody murder, and mm-hmm. there was nothing physically wrong with her. That's right. And I read that this, one of the Buddhists or one of the groups said that at six months is when the soul realizes it's trapped in the body. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought yeah. that's, that was what it felt like, but. Well, they usually they also say there's evidence that uh, really intelligent people, again maybe that realization, have difficult childhoods, you know, and they really rail against what they've. And I think also there's memories of other lifetimes, you know. There's, there's well, I mean the near death, not near death experiences, but the um, other lifetimes experiences. We've talked about that young man who was in a was killed in a uh, during World War II on that naval on the aircraft carrier and then born again and having he was shaking and, and having horrible dreams because he was still imagining himself drowning and in, and the, it was also on fire so I guess he was burning too. Yeah. So that that goes on with children as they transition. But yes, I've always thought that children bring along the astral uh, and, and, and divinity. Yeah. yeah. It's angelic, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's when they when they study babies versus adults, they the average baby, I think it's under a year old, smile. Once they start smiling, they mm-hmm. smile. It's it's literally like a thousand times a day, and the average adult it's like seventy five or something. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
don't we all just want to make life easy for each child? You know, you see all these children with problems with parents who aren't good enough, who get divorced, who can't treat them right, whatever goes on. You just want them, each one, to be know that they're loved. And then you think about orphanages and, and some of that. It's just really, really hard. Now, what do you do without God? How do you get through this without God? That's all very interesting. Let's say our closing prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father. Oh, Heavenly Father. Divine Mother. Divine Mother. I feel the wonder and the beauty. I feel the wonder and the beauty. Of thy glorious presence. Of thy glorious presence. In every part of my being. In every part of my being. My heart is bursting with my love for thee. My heart is bursting with my love for thee. I kneel in adoration at thy feet. I kneel in adoration at thy feet. And surrender myself to thee. And surrender myself to thee. I feel the power of thy perfection. I feel the power of thy perfection. Surging in every cell of my body. Surging in every cell of my body. My mind and my intelligence. My mind and my intelligence. Are radiant with thy healing light. Are radiant with thy healing light. My soul is filled with the ecstasy and bliss. My soul is filled with the ecstasy and bliss. Of my communion with thee. Of my communion with thee, I and my Father are one. I and my Father are one. Blessed Spirit, I am He. Blessed Spirit, I am He.
श्रीराम जय राम जय जय राम श्रीराम जय राम जय जय Jai Jai. 